0: You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hi there, I'm Dr. Himera Iqbal and I'm a lecturer in psychology at the Thomas Coram Research Unit at the UCL Institute of Education. On today's episode, we are so pleased to have with us Dr. Kerry Wong, who is also a lecturer in psychology here at the institute. Kerry is based at the Department of Psychology and Human Development, and her work has been around early assessments of childhood mental well-being, especially in relation to childhood paranoia, antisocial and aggressive behaviors, and schizophrenia spectrum disorders across cultures. Kerry studied psychology and criminology at the University of Pennsylvania in the States. Before moving to the UK to do a PhD in psychology from the University of Cambridge. Here, she developed the first dimensional assessment of paranoia in young children and teenagers. We will hear more about this later. Kerry and I go back quite a few years as we were both PhD students around the same time at the same research institute. Today, we are going to talk to Kerry about her work, but also learn more about her international study on mental health, social trust, and the COVID 19 pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, Kerry. Thanks for being here. How are things for you at the moment?
1: Things are good. Thanks for having me, Humira. <laughs>
0: it's, it's really good to reconnect. It's been a while.
1: I know. And I think the last time I saw you was last year's graduation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We sat on the stage and we, we were really proud of our students who graduated. It was a, it was a great moment.
1: How much things have changed?
0: I know, I know. We're we're in a really different world today, and it's it's kind of challenging seeing students graduating online. I mean, after all of all of that hard work, um, it's it's definitely different times indeed. Kerry, I'm going to ask you some questions because we really want to hear a lot about your work. It's really fascinating, and you know, just kind of reading about your background further. You've lived and studied in different places all over the world. Tell us how all of this travels influence your research.
1: Firstly, you know, I grew up in Hong Kong, Spent, you know, my high school years there and after moving out of Hong Kong, I moved to the US to pursue my undergraduate and master's uh, degrees at the University of Pennsylvania. And that was really the first time I left home for a long period of time, and and then after the states pursued a PhD uh, in Cambridge, as you talked about earlier. I think undergraduate degree and moving away from home for the first time is a very challenging experience, but also a very rewarding one, and that I really through that you know, through the four years, I realized how much I actually miss home, but at the same time, also being able to compare my experiences from back home and with those uh, experiences in the States. Um, yeah, so having having lived uh, both in Hong Kong and the States and the UK, um, I think it's really allowed me to... Um, you know, compare my experiences growing up in Hong Kong um, and with the experiences of other people that I meet along the way in, in both the US and the UK. Even though I went to an international school in Hong Kong, so it's more, it was more British system. And I, I find that even that experience, even, even though the education system is the same as a lot of my peers here in the UK, it's actually quite different (laughs) as well. And I think the, you know, the ability to see and compare lived experiences with kind of experiences that I've I've gone through as an adult has really shaped the way in which I empathize with a lot of international students that I meet now at the IOE and at UCL and their first experiences of moving to a foreign country, experiencing everything by themselves for the first time And then so forth. So in that sense, it's both helped my teaching and also my research in seeing kind of looking at similarities and differences across different cultures.
0: I can totally relate, Kerry, because we both do cross-cultural work and kind of try and see. But I mean, I, I agree with you. I think kind of moving and kind of living and surrounding yourselves kind of in different kind of spaces and kind of meeting different people, it really does kind of broaden your horizon. But I mean, it's interesting because two of the places you mentioned there are kind of at the forefront of the news at the moment, Hong Kong with the protests. But the states at the moment, the protests are going on, which have been sparked by the kind of brutal killing of George Floyd you know, in, in the Black Lives Matter movement, I wondered, I mean, given all your time in the States, do you have any reflections on this? I mean, I guess also, especially in relation to your work with children and young people?
1: Yes, I feel like I'm, I'm watching all of this unfold around the world, all this conflict and hostility unfold, but kind of on the sidelines as well. And as a researcher, as a psychologist, I do draw on some of the experiences I've gained whilst living in philadelphia one of the cities with the highest crime <laughs> rates in in america and that experience is so different to say living in london as well but i think one thing that all these experiences have gone me thinking about is the way in which we like what can i do about it right and what can people today do about it or change the future that children are going to experience. And I think we're at this moment or at the cusp where the world is changing. We are in a place or position where we can talk about these things. And I think that is so important in itself. And as an academic or as an educator, I think it's so important that we provide this safe haven or safe place for students of all cultures to feel safe enough to discuss these things, especially issues about prejudice, about discrimination, about race, about cultural differences, as well as similarities, I think. And then also as a child developmental psychologist, thinking about how we actually discuss these difficult questions and what's going on around the world with our children and with young people, because they are going to be the ones who are leading you know our society and, and the future
0: right mm, I mean I, I really hear you and I, I do I so hope that this is the beginning of change and you know children aren't born with an understanding of race it's something that comes through socialization and conversations. so I, I just think you know you're you're absolutely right and as academics we're responsible to bring about the change as best we can it's interesting because you talked about Philadelphia you talked about you brought in crime, actually. And, and you studied criminology and psychology when you were at the University of Pennsylvania. How did these two areas come together in your research and what you study?
1: That's a very interesting question. I kind of fell into it. <laughs> I didn't plan to study criminology at all, actually. In fact, I, you know, applied to be a psychology and fine arts major at the University of Pennsylvania. But because of the liberal arts education, I was able to take kind of different classes outside of my major as well through which I got to learn about you know, anything from Japanese poetry to you know, criminology and crime and even sociology classes as well, which I really enjoyed. And I, I think that's when I could see how all these disciplines are actually more interdisciplinary right? than it is classified. And so at the end of my junior year, and having, you know, having done a few research placements as well in different labs, both in positive psychology to working at a hospital with children from vulnerable backgrounds to kind of running decision-making labs experiments while at the Wharton School, I realized and really figured out what it was that I really enjoyed doing. And that was working with children face-to-face or families and through the research questions that I was asking, which were kind of understanding early signs or early symptoms in development that pertain to antisocial behavior or schizophrenia and whether or not we can intervene earlier in development as a result. So the combination of wanting to learn more about schizophrenia as a spectrum disorder In relation to the causes of crime, that hybrid or that research question kind of fit in two camps of both psychology and criminology. And therefore, you know, after my undergraduate degree, it felt kind of natural also for me to have another kind of have a foot in the criminology camp as well, because a lot of the theories that they developed also applies to what I'm studying as well.
0: Hmm. I love it a lot of our guests have talked about this the the fact that they work across different disciplines and how you know bringing them together really strengthens the way that you answer research questions so Kerry what's your favorite show on tv crime-based show on tv or on Netflix at the moment
1: (laughs) there might be quite a few but recently uh, especially the recent ones on Netflix it'd be the Innocence Files so that really captures the people who were put behind bars but then are actually innocent and then pertaining to the whole judicial system and kind of the strengths as well as flaws surrounding that and so forth. So that has been kind of my favorite and I've just finished it. It's a great one to watch but I think you also after each episode you feel great sense of injustice but kind of resonates with the with what I'm doing currently and the research that I'm doing so it, kind of gives it a bit more meaning as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well, I want to come back to your PhD, because when we were, we were posting our PhDs together, but you were working on something really different. And you, you developed this amazing scale called the social mistrust scale. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about it?
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, I went to the PhD wanting again to study schizophrenia spectrum disorders in relation to antisocial behavior. So that was the key question. The project evolved a little bit during my first year of the PhD, because it occurred to me that actually, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing how this question plays out in different cultures, having kind of my roots in Hong Kong, having lived in the States, and having this perfect opportunity of being in, in Cambridge, I felt like I needed to collect data in both Hong Kong and the UK to compare and see whether the relationship is different or this research question will have different uh, outcomes. And so I ended up collecting data on eight to 14 year olds, like so went into classrooms, I gave out a questionnaire booklet for children to complete on their own. And this was kind of a, a, as part of their PSHE class so their personal social health class right um, for them to also learn a bit about themselves and how they're feeling and what they're thinking and, and what their worries were and so it did that for about let me think over 30 classrooms and that's only in the UK (laughs) and primarily Cambridgeshire schools because those were the ones I could get to and then pretty much all of the international schools in Hong Kong as well I I had contacted and wanted to do research with them and for me it was very actually a really fun experience because I got to reconnect with old teachers of mine from primary school and high school and them being Yeah, them being kind of proud and also happy that they're helping out in some way. And so through those questionnaires, I then asked the question of whether or not we can actually measure paranoia or what we're calling kind of suspiciousness at the time. Mm -hmm. Because traditionally, a lot of the research has focused on adults and patient populations. And really, we don't kind of have this idea or knowledge that people don't just wake up one day and then they're super mistrustful or suspicious of other people around them. It's more of a developmental process and probably something that happens over time. And so one of the questions I wanted to ask was whether actually younger children and adolescents, whether they feel or have these thoughts as well about other people. And at the time, there were no studies on this. So my PhD project really was the first one to say, well, actually, children between the ages of 8 to 14, majority of them are very trusting of others, they are, you know, not experiencing anything really negative. But a small minority of them between 8 to 10% really have these uh, recurring and fixed thoughts about other people that they think other people are out to cause them harm and are threatening to them. So this really was kind of a key finding in that it is something that is uh, that replicates the adult research and literature. And on top of that, we realized that this small group of children who are highly kind of mistrustful of mm-hmm. others. They are also suffering from uh, things like anxiety, having low self esteem, high levels of aggression, so forth. So, these, you know, it, it seems to us that this is an important vulnerable group that we need to focus on because they actually are not receiving any help in any way. They don't have any kind of clinical diagnosis of any kind a majority of them are doing well, actually, in school. So they are kind of falling under the radar with a lot of what's going on.
0: So the scale you created, it was kind of the first of its kind. And I mean, I mean, that's really, really important and really kind of quite challenging questions you were kind of kind of challenging answers you were finding out about children or that particular subset of children who had feelings of mistrust. How widely has the scale been used?
1: So currently, it's, since been administered to a large group of about 2,500 twins uh, in China as well, because we wanted to see, well, how useful is this scale in relation to existing kind of clinical norms, and also how much of mistrust is heritable as well. So that was in a large, administered in a large sample in China, as well as other colleagues of mine have uh, used the scale and translated it in in Greek, Greek, sorry, and administered it in Greek, and so forth. So I'd say in total, probably, and now in the scale has been used in my latest COVID study as well. So I'd say somewhere, anywhere between four thousand, four and a half thousand to six thousand participants responses on the scale.
0: Wow. And I'm I'm sure it will continue to to be used. People will will continue to learn from it. So it sounds like you were very, very busy when you were at Cambridge and then you joined the IOE in 2018 and you've been really busy while you've been here also, because in 2019 you founded the IOE Early Career Network with Dr. Emma Jones. What motivated you to do this and kind of tell us about what, what are the aims of this network?
1: Yes, as you said, founded this, the Institute of Education Early Career Network, and we're kind of wanting to create this network for people who or staff members who are on different contracts as well. So these could be teaching fellows to research fellows to lecturers like myself, anyone really who can self-identify as being early career. And we wanted this network to provide a kind of social space as well as professional development opportunities for staff members. In particular, we realized that actually, you know, there's a lot for specific groups like PhD students or undergraduates, but really the early career group, again, broadly defined, there's very little kind of specific help for this group. And oftentimes, we are left finding our own way, I guess. And I think this whole network, part of it or the founding of it was really because Emma and I found ourselves having to figure everything out ourselves. And we really wanted to centralize all the resources at one place. And I guess to be able to form a platform for people who are new to the IOE to uh, welcome them, I guess. As well, and to connect them with other people around the same career stage as well.
0: Mm, so, a space for solidarity between kind of early career researchers important. I wanted to ask you, you know, as a woman uh, from a nation background like myself, except South Asian for me, have you faced challenges in academia kind of around this? And also, kind of, I wanted to ask in relation to the early career net kind of network, if you're thinking about what we can do to support minority ethnic staff from early career backgrounds?
1: Hmm, That's a very good question. take the the latter question first. In terms of the early career network, because it's such a new network, currently still at the stage of reaching out and connecting with all the early career people at the IOE. Of course, for myself, uh, being, as you said, um, of an Asian background, this is something that I think about a lot. And I would like the network to prioritize, hopefully, diversity in the future, in its future agenda as well. But one thing we are working on currently, in light of the Athena Swan as well, is to think about how we can be more inclusive first as a network. And at the start, we are currently already recruiting from recruiting representatives from every department to at least have the representation of every department and both female and male, because the IOE is a bit more tipped to the female side. And so I think this is definitely going to be at the forefront of what our network will think about in the future as well. So Athena Swan basically is well, we recently got the Athena Swan Bronze Award. And that award really recognizes the Institute as providing uh, lots of opportunities for equality, as well as inclusive ideas and events that encourage people to be equal, basically. And so this award is very important, both in recognizing quality and diversity across both teaching at the Institute and the the working environment as well, which is very important for staff here. Falling back to your question about you know whether or not being an Asian searcher, whether that I've encountered any difficulties or challenges, I would actually say I haven't had many hurdles or extra hurdles I feel like, that I had to jump through during my career. If anything, I think perhaps the stereotype of it being an Asian woman being more maybe timid or quiet, has actually, I don't know if it's helped or hindered, but it's actually perhaps forced me to become a bit more outspoken about my ideas and and
0: thoughts. Yes, Carrie.
1: Um, Both both as a student in the States, um, I realize people, there's this culture that, you know, you just, you have, there's a stereotype about you that you don't really, you're not meant to really talk about things or be outspoken but actually when you do speak up, people actually listen to you. And I find myself in that position quite often. And also, you know, with an American accent, kind of living in London and the UK, even though it's been like 10 years since I've lived here. I think that's actually confuses people a little bit as well. So they see me as being Asian, but have this American accent. And so people are often, I think, more confused
0: Brilliant. Confuse them and then dazzle. <laughs> Carrie. I want to ask you about your new study on COVID-19. You'll tell us about your study in a moment, I hope. But what's really interesting is that you actually lived through the SARS epidemic during your time in Hong Kong. And I, I just wanted to, to know like, what that was like and how that sort of inspired your present study.
1: Yeah. So I was doing my mock exams for my GCSE during the SARS outbreak in Hong Kong in 2003. And I mean, honestly, what I remember is having to wear a face mask to school every day and outside of school as well. And basically around the city, lots of kind of hand sanitizers were basically erupted <laughs> overnight, essentially. And I remember going home and, and every time I turn on the TV, they would be reporting the numbers of that day, or it'd be some footage of the doctors working really hard and saving lives, basically. And it's which just not that different to the experience that I'm, you know, that everyone probably is going through now with COVID. Except I think when I was going through SARS, those images were really vivid, and it almost... Almost if you ask anyone in my generation who had lived through that in Hong Kong, they would probably tell you that that's what they remember. And so when COVID started, even back in, you know, December time, and especially because Hong Kong had gone through it before the UK, I think I was already pretty prepared with everything. If anything, all of those memories flooded back and it kind of made me probably a bit more paranoid than usual. And so spark this kind of idea, or research question really is pertaining to my existing research program, which is to look to see whether or not levels of paranoia or mistrust also increases during this time of the pandemic, and how that affects or it affects our mental health as well as physical health during this time. Because I think moving forward, it's, you know, our experiences of COVID is not just going to go away, just like SARS, my memories of SARS, it's, it's ingrained in me. So it's important for us to understand over time, how people are dealing with these effects, and whether or not there could be other policy implications there, or whether or not, we should intervene in some way in the future as well. So I I think, you know, we should be thinking six months from now, as well as 12 months, because six months from now, it'll still be the flu season. And people will probably still remember what's happening now. But then this experience is probably forever going to be with us as well.
0: I think that's really interesting about your memories flooding back and kind of I think living through to you know so it was an epidemic in Hong Kong and a pandemic It right? just it's really kind of it's it must have kind of brought up a lot of emotions I imagine in your study you use the word social trust can you just what do you mean by social trust
1: so social trust is kind of well our really how do we relate to other people whether we perceive others as trusting or safe and I think at the same on the same spectrum, you have the other end, which is mistrust as well. That's really what I'm interested in as well, because without trust, you know, relationships can be hard. And also, trust is such an important concept for society as well and for people to feel safe. That if an individual just persistently doesn't feel safe, Enough to live, you know, or go about their lives. Then, really, that is quite an important issue that we need to address.
0: So, like in your study, like social trust would be with relation to COVID. Is it like social trust in, like, you trust your family members or people in your household to kind of follow rules? Like, you trust the government to? Are these the kind of questions?
1: It's actually even a bit more abstract than that. It is really the belief that people have about others that I'm interested in and whether or not the belief is that other people are out to harm you or they don't feel safe um, when they go out, that sort of thing. It's less so about specific organizations or individuals per se. Yeah.
0: And so what kinds of methods are you using in this study of yours to explore these questions
1: So, I mean, due to the limitations, probably a lot of the research studies that are going on right now are based on questionnaires, um, and all of them are largely online. So for my specific study, because it's also happening at multiple sites, um, involving collaborators both in Italy, Greece, here in the UK or London, as well as the US, Hong Kong, and Singapore as well. We decided to go with kind of a battery of questions. So it's primarily questionnaire-based, but we're hoping to follow up people or specific groups in more detail using interviews as well.
0: So I guess with surveys, you can probably reach a lot of people quite quite quickly across all of these different countries.
1: Yes, hopefully. <laughs> we currently, as of today, have over 1,700 responses on the survey and it's a roughly a 20 to 25 minute survey as well okay and
0: it's just such an international effort by the kind of looking at your website why did you choose these countries to work with
1: i actually i mean if i could i probably wanted to work with everyone because i think at the time i was interested where you know one question we're interested in is seeing how lockdown guideline differences across different countries have an effect on people's also well-being and social trust in others. And so it was quite important for me to tap into all the collaborators I had who were at other countries or other institutions to help out with it. And so the ones that I connected with or were interested in collaborating, they happened to be in the countries that I mentioned earlier.
0: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So you have a real range of different kind of policies around how COVID's managed, and you, I guess you'll really be able to compare. So just like a kind of a, a last question, really. I mean, what, what are you hoping to achieve from this study? And do you have any predictions you could share with us about what you might find?
1: Yes. So this is a longitudinal study over spanning over 12 months. So we started our first wave of data collection in April early April and it's still going so we're hoping to probably close the survey either end of the month or early July and so then our next we have two more time points after that once in the next one will be in the winter so between October to January and then the final wave will be the same time as, as this you know in April to July but in 2021 So we're hoping to, or at least I'm hoping specifically to look at how trust changes over time during this pandemic in relation to mental health uh, indicators. So we're looking at things such as loneliness, anxiety, depression, sleep quality, which a lot of other studies are currently looking at as well. But in addition, we're hoping to get a gauge at physical health as well. So we have measures of physical health, empathy, we're interested in looking at empathy levels, as well as levels of aggression as well. You know, being locked down and cooped up at home really can take a toll on how you act and react as well. And hopefully, in the long run, we're aiming as a team to contribute to the, you know, knowledge and literature that's already Uh, Flooding (laughs) the fear as well on this topic.
0: Well, I mean, there's such a range of things you're looking at and I'm really looking forward to to hearing about the findings. The sleep quality one, definitely. I've spoken to so many people who talk about the fact that sleep is hard at the moment. So I think it'll be really interesting. Kerry, it's just been wonderful to speak to you and kind of hear about the range of research you do and really fascinating because it's so cross-cultural. You look in different contexts. And you think about these issues in a real global way. So thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: Wonderful. If you'd like to know more about Kerry, you can go to kerrywong.com and look at her website. Also follow her on Twitter, Dr. Kerry Wong. For more in the study and to take part, go to www.globalcovidstudy.com and follow the study on Twitter, Global c19 study remember you can listen to the past two seasons of research for the real world and other podcasts from the ioe on your favorite podcasting app just search for ioe podcast and also have a listen to our spotify playlist all of our guests and podcast teams favorite hits to get you through the lockdown just search research for the real world i'm himera iqbal and see you again next time Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London.